Ali Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And now it's time for our Turning Point series, where we hear from both famous and ordinary folks about turning points in their lives. What it was, what came before it, what came after it, and where they are now. And today we are joined by Bill Bachman, who the Washington Post profiled, and their profile started out like this. Bill Bachman had the perfect Washington career. He was a partner at Williams & Connolly, consistently ranked as the city's top law firm. Lunches came from the firm's beautiful attorney dining room. He had a closet full of suits with his name embroidered in the lapel. He specialized in antitrust cases, environmental crimes, and the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act. His salary? Let's just say that life was comfortable. Bachman also had some nagging doubts. We'll get into those nagging doubts and what led Bill to leave this plush life to become, of all things, a Division Three college football coach. Yep, D3 college football. And he's thrilled about it, as he should be. Bill, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, thank you for having me. You bet. Bill, before we get into the turning point, tell us about your early life, where you grew up, how it shaped you, your parents, and the impact on all of that uh, leading up to that turning point. Well, I grew up in New Jersey, and... Uh... My father was a judge, and he had graduated from Harvard Law School and was a state court judge in Middlesex County, and my mother was a school teacher. And so, um, you know, I grew up uh, around a teacher and somebody involved in the legal profession, and so when I uh, was thinking about what I wanted to do the rest of my life, I guess I I favored my mother's side, at least initially, and uh, I was an education major in college, a physical education major, and then uh, pursued... um, a career as a teacher and a coach, you know, initially uh, when I graduated from college. And what, tell me about that experience, what you liked about it, what led you to leave that experience after college? Um, I graduated in 1982 from Westchester University outside of Philadelphia, and my first coaching job was at Washburn University in Topeka, Kansas. I was there for two years, and then I was at James Madison University in Harrisonburg, Virginia for six years. Um, and I guess, um, and then I went to law school. So uh, with respect to uh, some of the frustrations I had when I was uh, at least initially uh, in that profession the first eight years was that uh, so many things that you do when you're teaching a coach and you're, you're being evaluated on things that are really beyond your control. A lot of your life or livelihood is in the hands of 18, 19, 20-year-olds and you know, there were periods of time there that, you know, that can become frustrating. You know, you lose control in, in some measure. Um, and so um, I went to law school um, probably without some sense that I was going to leave the coaching profession. I went to law school to kind of enhance my resume, so to speak, um, to make me more um, protected, I guess, if, to the extent I wanted to stay in coaching. To enhance my resume, there were some college football coaches at the time. This was back eighty nine, ninety, that had law degrees. I had gone to a small college, and I thought if I got a law degree, then I would maybe reassert some control over my life and, and remove some of it from the hands of the eighteen, nineteen, twenty-year-olds. That, of course, was a fiction, you know. But but at least that was the thought process. Yeah, and it worked at least for a while. I mean, I, I went to UVA law school. And I think for very much the same reasons you did, a pretend backup plan that I really had no plans of pursuing. 
Um, and luckily for me, I didn't sit for the bar and I didn't. Um, but uh, it was because that wasn't a part of my life and my passion. What, so what happens next? You, you, you go to law school and you go to a, a, a fine law school. And the next thing you know, well, there goes the coaching and you're a lawyer. How did that happen? Was it a, was it a cog- cognitive choice? Did you figure I'll just do this for a little while, make some money, go back to coaching? Or the heck with coaching, enough's enough. Two things happened that were uh, were surprising. One is, um, um, if I can be, you know, let's, let's be perfectly honest. I got divorced and I had a young child, and I couldn't imagine myself. And I don't judge anybody who does this, but I would never imagine myself leaving my son behind and getting back on the kind of the gypsy lifestyle that is college coaching. You know, you can just have to look up anybody's resume. They've coached at fifteen colleges all over the country. I couldn't leave my son behind, and secondly. I got really good grades at Georgetown, better than I had gotten as an undergrad. And so all of a sudden, A, I didn't want to leave, and B, I had an opportunity to work in a law firm in Washington, D.C., given the grades that I had gotten at Georgetown. And so those two things almost conspired to put me on this treadmill that I never expected to be on. Um, and um, before you knew it, um, I was at Williamson. You know, I did a clerkship with a federal judge, a very prestigious clerkship, and then uh, ended up at Williamson Conley. And I was like, I was into it a couple of years, and you know, and my money, you know, I had lots of money, and I really and worked with wonderful people and had a great job. But it kind of, like I would say, snuck up on me. Right, it snuck up on you. And by the way, this is no disrespect to people who pursue law as a profession. It's all about what you love what you want, what's best for you, and what's best for your family. And very often in life, we men do this. I think women do it too. We go down a path. We find ourselves not happy. Some of us stay on it, and we end up dying miserable. And other of us get off the track and try something new. And it's not easy to get off the track. Talk about, if you can, uh, real shortly here, a couple of one nagging doubt you started to have. You only have about a minute here. When we come back, we'll really dig into the doubts and what led to that, that sudden a career change or not so sudden career change? That, that's a great question. I guess the thing that I could say in a, in a quick minute is that I came, I was doing fine at the law firm. I was doing fine and doing good work and representing the clients well and achieving and obviously got an opportunity to make partner. But I began to wonder whether or not, um, I don't know that God puts you on this earth to be great at everything, to be great at multiple things. And I began to wonder whether um, there was something I could do in the world that was better than what I was doing. There were people at the law firm that are literally the best in the world at what they do at Williamson Conley. And I wasn't the best in the world at that. But I thought there might be something out there that I could be best in the world at. Yep. And thought that was teaching. Yep. And, what, and that's what you thought it was. And in fact, I think you knew, sort of, Bill, from your prior experience. We're talking to Bill Bachman. And we're doing our Turning Point series from law partner to Division Three college football coach. When we come back, we're going to hear how that happened. Bill Bachman, Turning Point. This is Our American Stories. More after these messages.
This is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Bill Bachman, a law firm partner in Washington, D.C., who turned Division Three college football coach at Catholic University. That, too, is in Washington, D.C. And, Bill, we were talking about these nagging doubts, and that is, what is my God-given talent? You know, my dad was a great teacher. He was a great educator from New Jersey himself, a little town called Bergenfield, and that was his question every day when he woke up, when, even when he was superintendent at schools. What's each kid's God-given talent? What is it, and how do we put them on that, on that track? Uh, whether it's working with your hands, working on cars, or whatever it might be. And teaching kids will be a lot easier. My dad was a great teacher. And you had a love, it turns out, for teaching, Bill. And you really couldn't really get at that at a law firm, could you? No. Um, you know, like I said, um, uh, I... I coached and taught my kids when they were younger uh, throughout their lives, and I guess the precipitating event for the transition here was when my son turned 13, he kind of aged out, and my teaching coaching fix, I I didn't really do anything for fun other than teach and coach my daughter, my son, their various teams, and when my son aged out, I was, like, I, uh, there was a huge hole there that wasn't being satisfied, um, even recreationally, and so that led me to reach out to colleges in the D.C. area to see if there was a place that I could help. Well, you know, you you were always teaching your kids, and it sounds like you've got some great kids, Bill, and there's nothing we can be prouder of in our life, and our greatest life work is our progeny. It is our kids. But you were teaching your kids to pursue their dreams, to do what God had intended them to do, to figure that out, and yet, at the end, in the end, you weren't doing that yourself, were you? Talk about your kids and how they impacted this decision. Well, we spend so much time with, you know, I have three children. I'm blessed, as you're right. You know, you're so proud of your kids, and you preach every day um, uh, to chase their dreams or uh, to believe in what they want to become, and they can become anything they want to. And, um, and, and me and my wife talk often about the fact that, um, I had this harboring thought in my head that I should be doing something other than practicing law in Washington, D.C., yet I was, so I was talking, saying one thing to my own children and how they should live their lives, and I was living it a different way. And so um, this decision not only was good for me, but it was good for them because it was an opportunity for uh, them to see me um, practice what I preach. Um, and so after they got over the initial shock of, you know, some of the things that go along with working at a, at a big Washington law firm, you know, um, they were so proud and so excited, and they're excited to this moment, to this day, about uh, their father kind of fulfilling his dreams, which is what we tell them all the time, um, you know, to, to do the same in their own lives, not just today, but uh, next week, next month, next year, 20 years from now. Well, let's talk about that decision in that time. I remember, you know, here I am coming out of University of Virginia Law School. The world's my oyster, and I make this really hard decision. I've seen what the law is, and I go, you know what? I just don't want to do this for the rest of my life. A lot of my friends went forward, and I got the, are you crazy? Are you nuts? And, you know, those people I just sort of cut out of my life, but the ones who said, hey, good for you, do what you want to do, and go stumble around and figure out what that is. So here you are. Did you have an internal voice that said, are you nuts? Because forget about the external voice. I had that myself. I had to really battle with myself to not sit for the bar because I knew if I did, then I'd say I'm only going to practice for a year, and then it would be I'm only going to practice for five years, and I knew I'd be 50. And boom, it would be over. 
It would be over. I just I sensed that in myself, and I actually had a couple of good mentors. Talk about that, and talk about how your law law firm dealt with this, and talk about how your kids and your wife responded to this final decision. Well, I think you know initially uh, the "Are you nuts?" conversation you have for years before I was able to pull the trigger. Like that "Are you nuts?" didn't happen in the moments you pulled the trigger. It happened for two or three, four years. Like I think when you make a decision like this. Sometimes people around you think you're being impulsive, but I was nothing. I was not close to impulsive. I had thought about this, talked about this with my wife for years, but those conversations gravitated towards me saying, I must be nuts to think to do this. I must be nuts. Uh, And, of course, I wasn't, but at the time, that's what you think. Um, In terms of the law firm, um, I I think, you know, outwardly I have very good friends, and those those are great people at Williamson Connolly, and they were, uh, to the extent, um, they knew what I was doing, and we got a chance to talk about it. Uh, incredibly supportive. I suspect there probably were a handful of people there who, not completely incorrectly, thought I was being nuts about it. Um, and I think initially, with respect to my own children, um, they they never thought that. I mean, like all kids, you know, the first things people tend to think of it is how will this impact me? How this how will this impact me? And my kids were no different. Um, once we were able to um, kind of deal with that issue in the sense that this career change wasn't going to impact them, then they only saw it for the positive that it was, really, which was their father living his dreams, the same dreams that, um, you know, same kind of dream uh, that he was encouraging uh, all of them to live, you know. So I was, I, I think, really fulfilling my, my duty as a father to be a role model for my kids. But, but certainly at the beginning, you know, and there might have been a day or two days or three days where the kids had some, or a week or so, where the kids were wondering, like, well, you know, like any change that parents undertake, how will this impact me? Yep. And that's, I think that's normal. You know, change of any kind is tough. But if it's this kind of change with integrity, change with a deep reason, I think kids get over those kind of changes really fast, especially if they see a happier, more fulfilled dad and let's face it, so often as parents, we don't take care of ourselves or our marriages, and we sacrifice a lot at the altar of work and at the altar of the kids, and a lot of other things fall behind, in- including ourselves. Two things I think that are remarkable at this, you, you know, there's a, th- a strain in men that says, my responsibility is to provide a really good living. And so what you were leaving behind is a high-paying job for a lower-paying job. Also, a negative strain for a lot of men is status. And so many men try to pursue status, and we know where that always ends up in the end, Bill. Lonely, it doesn't get you what you want. But talk about the, those two things, responsibility and status, as it weighed into the decision. Well, I think uh, the responsibility is the, is the uh, corollary to the point you were making a moment ago, which is the are you nuts conversation you have with yourself, which is, um, you know, this is, uh, you're being selfish. You know, that's the, that's the question as a man you ask yourself. Yep. This is selfish. This is self-indulgent. Um, but I had the, the great support of my wife who basically said, you have taken care of us for a long time. You have supported us for a long time. You've put us in a situation where we can do this. And the only thing that's stopping us from doing it is, is, is just having the courage to do it. So, you know, probably the help of a, of a, of a wonderful wife that kind of pushes over the top. But a, a, a real concern. In terms of a status, um, well, you know, uh, I, I said this um, 
I figured out a long time ago um, that um, when you won a case or you lost a case at, at the law firm, your kids never cared. They never cared. Like, the people that were most important to you never cared. You know, you come home, you win a summary judgment, you know, argument or motion or something like that. Your kids didn't care. And so when you get to a place where you're walking away from those kinds of things, you know, the, the only status that really matters, and I, I kind of was comfortable enough in my own skin to figure this out, was the people closest to me, my wife, my children. And, um, you know, outwardly in the public, the status level may be impacted, but to the people who are closest to you that didn't measure you by the cases you wanted, the cases you lost in any event, uh, there was no really impact on my status. To them, I was who I was. I was a father. I was a friend. I was a husband. And so I, I was I was okay there because I kind of crossed the Rubicon on that thought process. You know, I, I, my, my kids had already taught me um, what was important and what was not important in terms of status. They, they just don't really care. Yeah. They, don't, they don't care. You know, they don't. They, they don't know it. They don't care. They don't want to care. They just want to be close to you. And you know, I, I find, by the way, that status is just a Rorschach test. Me personally, I could care less whether you're a lawyer or whatever you are. But boy, when I see a college football coach or a high school football coach engaged, and I know that all he has to wear is a football outfit with a logo with a school on it, that's status to me. Because uh, that yeah. guy's out there doing what he loves, and he's working with kids and. I, that was what my dad did all my life, and I thought it was the greatest life. He told me he never worked a day in his life. He was able to feed and provide for his family, and that's all you need to do in life. How has it changed your life, uh, if you can, Bill? 30 seconds or so. How does how does this changed your life? Well, I feel like your dad. I mean, I feel like um, um, right now um, my days are filled. I, I work as many hours as I work on the law firm. But I don't feel I'm working now. I don't. I don't. I. I. I, I don't work for a living anymore. I. I pop out of the bed early in the morning. I'm excited, and um, you know, from that standpoint, I do think I'm happier around my kids. I'm happier around my wife. Um, like I said, the, the paycheck has changed, but the hours have not changed. That's right. The, the hours never changed for my dad. He worked a long day, but he loved the product, and the product was children. This is Lee Habib. This is our American stories. Turning point is the subject, Bill Bachman, from law firm partner to D3 college football coach. This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories here on this show about music, business, history, art, but we especially love sharing stories that help us to develop lasting, healthy relationships from the start. One of our favorite guests is a medical doctor in North Carolina who does much, much more than treat symptoms. Her patients affectionately call her Dr. Rose, and we're so glad she's here to share some of her experience Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and a director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16 years. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000-plus children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, thanks so much for coming on. 
Thank you. Always so nice to be here, Lee. Well, today we're going to cover two stories, one in this segment, one in the next. And this has to do with children doing poorly in kindergarten. Let's hear story one first, Dr. Rose. Yes, and before we go into it, I want to remind parents uh, that the teachers in kindergarten, uh, that teaching kindergarten today are not are the teachers that taught kindergarten and first grade 25, 30, and 35 years ago. They don't have the kind of training, um, and they don't understand child development, but they certainly are not the teachers that are maybe 40 to 55 years old that have uh, a, a lot of experience with this age group so that they have an understanding of where children wind up. And so it's in, in the, uh, the face of that that I want to remind parents that you know your child best. And when sometimes we're too busy with life to understand our children, then we have to sit down and think about our instinct with our kids and maybe pray about it so that we get a better understanding on how to help our children. The first little girl uh, that I wanted to talk about is Miss Kathy. Miss Kathy is actually, we, she's, she's called Katia by her family because she's Hispanic. And she's got a very loving family. Uh, Mom and Dad do not speak a lot of English, but they speak Spanish to her at home. And she is very rambunctious, very inquisitive, and delightful young lady. Now, she's in kindergarten, and I happen to be taking care of her sister uh, on the last appointment. And when I was taking care of the sister, I looked over and saw her reading a book in Spanish. And it was not an easy book, and I asked, How old is Katia now? Oh, she's five going on six, and she's in kindergarten. And she's reading the book, and the name of the the title of the book was La Casa Adormecida, which means a a, a house that is asleep. And as you can imagine, adormecida is a very difficult word. And she was struggling with this word, trying to to, um, read it, but she didn't have the basics in reading to be able to sound the word out. And I stopped my exam with the other child, and I sat down with Katia and said, Katia, let me tell you how to read that big word. And I bet you after I do this, you're going to read most of the book. And I taught her how to read phonetically and slowly sound the word out. So we went through a door me, see, and da. And bear with me because that is how, how uh, it is read out phonetically in Spanish. And you see, in Spanish, the reading is phonetic 100% of the time. In English, we have phonetical reading that is 80% of the time. And so another 20% falls outside of that being able to sound the words out. And so... I looked at Katia, and her eyes got really wide, and she looked at me, and she said, looking at the word, me si da, and goes back to the book and starts reading it letter by letter, sound by sound, and I realized, oh, my goodness, I have a flourishing reader. And I said, Mom, did you know that you have an incredibly intelligent girl that can read in English and in Spanish? And she looked at me, 
got a little taken aback by that, and said, no, Dr. Stein, in fact, the school is telling me that she's not meeting her benchmarks on her reading, and she's she's quite behind on her reading skills. I'm still looking at Katia reading her book, and now she's on the fifth and sixth page and sounding every single word out and working at reading in Spanish. And I said, no, that's not so. If she's reading below grade level, it's because they are not um, using, utilizing her phonetic reading ability, and they're teaching her sight words. And sight words is not the, the best way to teach this young girl how to read because you have to memorize the word. And in that, in that type of reading, black and block would be the, almost the same, and you would have to guess at which one you're actually reading. And because she figured out how to read phonetically, she's able to read every word, even when she doesn't know what that word means. And here's Katia still going through the book. By the time that we were done with her sister's exam, Katia was done with her book, and she came over to me and she said, can I take this book home? I really like the story about the kids, everybody who was sleeping in, in the house, and they were so peaceful. And I looked over to Mom, and she says, I said, all she needs is a little bit of help, and I know that you think that you don't have the skills for Katia because you speak Spanish, and she is learning English at home. But if you help her with her reading, if you help her even in Spanish, and that will flow over into her English, if you take the words that she doesn't know and make her repeat them and look them up in the dictionary, you will feed into that inquisitive brain, and she will be reading at her pace. And so many times in school we're trying to fit a type of reading or writing or learning that doesn't fit into the child's development. And we're curtailing their, their ability to learn and to develop properly. But if you, in, if you instinctively understand how that child learns and how she adapts herself to her age and to her environment, then your child will always succeed. And the mom looked at me and she says, I'll try that. And so Katya went home. And I'm, I'm yet very excited to see what happens in the next months and maybe years of Katya's life because she's got a very high IQ and a very high energy of learning. And I know that, that, that taking her the right way, she will give us much in return. Well, and this is such a, an important story because as we all know now, every kid learns differently. Every kid has different skill sets. And I think we're looking... And an education system that was geared for the industrial uh, civilization of the early 20th century. And so we trained everybody the same way at the same time for factory work. And life's different now. And our kids need such more complicated and rich and in-depth skills. And we can't teach them in mass. It's a -a one-at-a-time prospect. And I think the problem, Dr. Rose, as and this isn't the education uh, system's fault, they just, they're just they just not equipped to do it this way. They, they batch them out 30 at a time, 25 at a time. We're so glad you brought this up. And when we come back, more with Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein. We heard about Katya, and now we're going to hear another story and another kindergartner. More after these messages with Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, as we like to call her, Dr. Rose. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Dr. Rose. And we're talking today about school, about kindergarten in particular. We heard Katia's story, and let's now dovetail into that second story. Talk about that second child in kindergarten who wasn't doing, well, so-called wasn't doing well. Oh, yes. That is well said. So-called hasn't been doing well. And so little Brian uh, was started in, in kindergarten, and he went to a school, and his parents took the time to, to, to enroll him in a charter school. And if you're not familiar with charter schools, these are, these are public schools still, but they have a slightly different curriculum. But they really uh, count on a lot of parental responsibility. In other words, instead of having uh, a school system drive them in, uh, the parents drive them. And so that cuts the cost of the school having to do that and so they can invest more money into other things. But instead of extracurricular activities being the responsibility of schools, the extracurricular activities are the responsibility of the parents. The parents have a a couple of days a year that they actively have to be uh, uh, present at the school. Uh, They have a list of things that they have to be able to uh, supply for the child. Uh, The books are paid for by the parents. So there's a much higher level of parental engagement and responsibilities. And it is my theory that that charter schools work better because of that extra engagement that the parent has to have. Now, little Brian is in one of the, the county's charter schools, and he's been there for two years. Two years? Wait a minute. How is that? Well, because he's only in kindergarten, yes? Brian is now almost seven, and he's still in kindergarten because last year Brian didn't meet his benchmarks, so he got left behind and when he was five to six. So this year he starts kindergarten once again, and they, they, the parent and, and the teacher talked about it, and they said, well, maybe he's a little bit immature, and so he wasn't ready. And so they put him back into kindergarten, And somewhere in November, the mom and the dad come in, and mom is in tears. And Brian is still not functioning at the correct kindergarten level. And and mom breaks down in the room and says, how long does he have in kindergarten? We're looking at a kid who's going to be seven, and he is not ready to go into first grade yet. And I said, Tell me what's going on. Tell me how it is that he is not ready for first grade when he's in kindergarten. What kind of responsibilities is he being given? Well, he's supposed to do things that, in my consideration, Brian should not be having to do in kindergarten per se. He has to read a certain number of words per minute. And when he doesn't do this, he's not meeting his benchmarks. He's supposed to be writing words out from memory, and he's supposed to be sounding out words that are called nonsense words, which means that they don't mean anything, but he's supposed to sight-read these words. He's supposed to know number facts and to explain why 5 plus 7 equals 12 uh, instead of just knowing his number facts. And so you see in how, in how many ways 
his schooling doesn't make sense. And, it, and, and the mom explained all this to me, but said, but the other kids are doing it. I said, but Brian is different. I said, tell me about what Brian can do that leaves you completely surprised about what he does. Well, she said, he can think of something that he tells me that he has in his head, and then he goes over and he, he draws it out perfectly. He can tell me about something that he's thought about, and he goes over to his Legos, and he, he builds it, and he makes it work. I said, so all the time that the teacher is explaining all of these things or trying to teach something that doesn't make any sense, Brian's going off to a faraway land, and he's thinking about things that actually stimulate his brain. This isn't that he's not, not equipped for, for first grade and he has to repeat kindergarten. It's that school is not meeting his, his, his academic needs. It's not stimulating his development and his brain. And so he's retreating into a world that he's making himself to make himself interested in, in whatever he's got to learn from. And the mom looked at me like, wow. And so I started talking to Brian. I said, Brian, are you, are, are you misbehaving at school? He goes, no, ma'am. So what are you doing when the teacher's trying to teach you something? Oh, just trying to keep myself still, ma'am, because otherwise I'll, I'll get in trouble if, if, if I move around. And so I said, so what do, you, what do you keep yourself occupied with? I just try to draw pictures in my mind, and, and I go over things that happen that were fun. Wow. So for six hours during the day, Brian is retreating into a world where he's thinking about things and building on his experiences. Imagine that. So then I had a solution for mom and dad. And what was that? Well, I said, and here's something that I don't say very frequently. I said, they've been harping on you so long at school for him to be on a stimulant that to lower their, uh, their demand of you, we're going to put him on a very low dose of a stimulant so that he functions a little bit better at paying attention. And mom and dad agreed, and then mom says, I'm so glad you said that because I'm about to burst. Something's got to give. I couldn't take it anymore. And so I said, I understand. And so in other words, sometimes, even though medically it might not be the most needed thing, the, the, the doctor listens to what's going on and may not, may, may not give the, the most uh, medically appropriate, but, but yet needs appropriate care. And so I said, let's give him a very low dose of this medication so that you can go back to the teacher and say he's getting a very low, he's getting a dose. I wouldn't necessarily say it's a low dose, but he's getting a dose of the medication, and let's see how he does. But at home, I want you to train him how to fold clothes, how to do, do chores, how to keep at it. And when he doesn't do it appropriately, then you teach him again and you spend time at it, at it again. I want him spending time with his dad because he really looks up to his dad and what dad is doing with mechanics and being able to do repetitive things. And he needs to be able to learn those things. 
And then let's put a little bit less emphasis on, on his meeting his benchmarks, but yes, on teaching him how to read, how to recognize words by sounding them out, and how to write deliberately and slowly so that he slows himself down. Because most of this is that he's just going too fast at a rhythm that is not understandable and not uh, functional for him to be able to get things done the right way. And so they went home with a little list of things that they were going to do uh, every day that they could with Brian to exercise his brain and to make him slow down, but to continue to challenge him and help him and to stimulate him with this artistic ability that Brian has. And then what was the result? Well... Brian came in just recently, and yes, we have decided to keep him on his stimulant because he has met all of his benchmarks, and now he's beyond them. He's reading now at a first-grade level. Nobody is talking about how he's doing in school. And understand me, the level that I, of medication that I put him on is very, very low. It was not enough to get him through the whole day. And now he's doing well with his homework. He's feeling self-confident because he is doing well at school and people are not harping on mom and dad about how poorly he's doing. And best of all for me to see Brian is that Brian is smiling again and he's telling me stories and he's telling me about what he's thinking about in his brain that he wants to happen. And so now we have a content Brian. And of course, Mom and Dad are happy again because Brian is doing well. And what a great story, Dr. Rose. And, and, and these weren't like super heavy lifts. They were tweaks. They were adjustments. And what a difference in this kid's life. And by the way, how many of us, are, as you were describing, you know, this young boy going off and retreating into his own world because what was happening in front of him in the classroom was boring him. That was me in, in, in high school. That was me in college most of the time. And in law school, my goodness, he had to wake me up three quarters of the time. I was the guy who was always asleep. I couldn't take it. I, I, I didn't understand what anyone was talking about or why it mattered in my life. And Dr. Rose, we appreciate what you're doing, kindergarten particularly, if we can get this and catch this stuff early. What a difference it's going to make in the entire life of that young family and that young boy or girl. Thanks so much for what you're doing, Dr. Rose, and we'll talk to you soon. Thank you. Always a pleasure. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Dr. Rose's stories, always in the end, parent stories and kids' stories, here on Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories. Of all the stories we tell here, Our American Dreamer series has some of our favorite, favorite outcomes. They're so different on paper, but once you look past age and country of origin, these stories all hit the same points. The triumph of free enterprise, faith, family, hard work, and love that can only happen here in America. Today we're joined by Nam Pham, whose American Dreamer story is about as impressive a journey as we can imagine. Today, he's the Harvard-educated Assistant Secretary of Business Development and International Trade for the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. But his story began in a very, very different world. In his own words, quote, The first 10 years of my life, I lived in an area called War Zone D. Nam, thank you for joining us to share your American Dreamer story. If you could, tell us a little bit about your childhood in Vietnam, where you were born. Where did you grow up there? Describe the, the place and what was happening around you at the time. Uh, thank you. It's my honor to share with you all my little story. Uh, I was born in South Vietnam, uh, but... Uh, my parents had uh, fled North Vietnam when the communists took over in 1954. Uh, so I was born in the middle of a refugee evacuation, a refugee resettlement. And uh, during my first uh, 10 years of my life, my family had to move from one place to another because, uh, frankly, my father was being chased around by the communist uh, guerrillas. Uh, I, mem- I remember when I, uh, when I was growing up, uh, my father uh, could not stay in one place, could not sleep in one place for two consecutive nights because the communist guerrilla were chasing after him. Uh, he t- had grew up uh, in North Vietnam. He saw uh, the terror of uh, communism. He saw the repression uh, of what happened to ordinary people uh, in North Vietnam. Uh, so t- uh, he told us that uh, his goal is to ensure that people in South Vietnam, people like me, uh, would have some basic uh, freedom, some basic necessity to live. Uh, so therefore, he joined the union at that time to organize the rubber plantation workers, of which he was one of the workers himself. Uh, so he was, he was being chasing around, uh, my uh, sister, my younger sister, I remember when she was two or three years old, uh, any man would walk into my home, uh, she would call daddy, daddy, because she never got a chance to know her father. And uh, around my uh, little hamlet, the, uh, again, the guerrillas would uh, come in middle of the night, uh, kidnap uh, people, and executed them uh, and displayed or actually uh, proved their bodies on the side of the road. So in the morning, uh, people would uh, collect the bodies and put them in the market so the families uh, could come in and identify and bury them. And this is uh, something, I, this is something, Nam, that, that had, to, had to put everybody in that, in that small place that you lived in abject terror and fear for their lives. Uh, yes, yes, we all we all uh, were very afraid that we were killed. But on the other hand, I think uh, we also got used to with it. 
Uh, I remember uh, my uh, my home was uh, rocketed by the communist guerrilla randomly uh, 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 almost every night. Uh, so to, uh, in our ho- in our home, we had to duck uh, a bunker. And you know anything about Vietnam? It's hot. It's humid. It's very hot and humid inside the bunker. Uh, after a few nights stay in the bunkers, I told my mom that mom. Uh, let me uh, let me sleep. I don't care. Uh, and uh, amazingly, my mom let me uh, sleep, uh, and I literally just slept through one of those uh, explosions. Uh, so uh, we had to, we had to get used to what was going on uh, with uh, with the war, with the with all of these crazy things that we seen uh, every day. Now, large-scale deployments of American soldiers started in Vietnam in the mid-60s, and you remember the kindness of American soldiers who gave kids things like candy and trinkets. Talk about those experiences with what American soldiers meant to you, their presence in your streets, in your life. Yes. uh, uh, If you remember, even the first 10 years before the American deployment, uh, we were living in fear. Uh, so with the uh, arrival of uh, the GIs, uh, we become more hopeful uh, because then uh, we uh, we felt that we had friends, we had people who helped us uh, to uh, to fight for our own uh, own freedom. And uh, I, mean, I never met a Westerner before in my life until I ran into a group of uh, American soldiers. Uh, I still remember vividly that I was walking home from school, uh, and uh, here in front of me, uh, a group of five or six uh, soldiers in their green uniform uh, smiling at us uh, and give us the candy. And uh, uh, and I think uh, they tried to uh, to say try to say hi to me, but I I didn't know any English, uh, so I just accepted the candies and uh, and walk away. And uh, I, I told myself that this is unbelievable. These strange-looking people, uh, and now they know that they're blonde, uh, blonde hair, blue eyes, uh, short haircut. Yep. Uh, they look, they look big. They look strong, uh, but they were so kind. And uh, that's uh, that's uh, one thing that, when for a little kid, uh, I remember uh, for the rest of my life how. How kind, how how friendly they were. Well, let's hold that thought. Big, strong, and kind. What a wonderful way to describe the American GI. And when we come back, our American Dreamers series, as always, brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network, where free enterprise, small business, are the rule of the day, protecting free enterprise and fighting for the interests of small business owners, the liberty and freedom of those small business owners to grow their businesses. We're talking with Nam Pham, from refugee, refugee to government business and civic leader here in the United States, this is Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Nam Pham from refugee to government business and civic leader. And Nam, we left off with you talking about your first encounters with American soldiers. And they look like something you'd never seen before. And yet remember, you remember them being strong and kind. And I'm, I know that GIs would love to hear that. Those of us uh, that have relatives around the world deployed and stationed in every corner of this great earth. So the war proceeds, Nam, and the U.S.'s will to win the Vietnam War, well, it decreased by the late 60s, waned by the early 70s. What effects did you see on the ground in Vietnam around that time, leading right up to the, to the evacuation? Get us right up to before that point in time, Nam. Yep. Uh, I, my family had to move from a little hamlet to a village to a town and to and find it to Saigon. So during that uh, span of eight years, uh, I get a chance uh, to, I don't know if the chance or not, but I was uh, growing up with the war. And uh, the two things that uh, always uh, imprinted in my mind, uh, one was the, the communists, the North Sides, how, uh, how terrible uh, that they could be, I and mean, they basically destroy and shooting people uh, at uh, at random. It doesn't matter what. Uh, the thing that we saw on TV regarding ISIS these days already happened in Vietnam, uh, committed by uh, by the North uh, more than any any other group. Uh, and uh, I mean, with that in mind, I later on I so appreciative of all of the uh, sacrifice, uh, the help. Uh, of the American uh, uh, service uh, men and women uh, had given to us. Uh, my uh, my uh, late uh, mother-in-law, uh, uh, she was trying to, actually, the communist was trying to assassinate her husband, but the bullet went into her. So she was safe and cure by an American military doctor. Uh, and uh, their family never forget uh, forget uh, uh, how kind, how how wonderful uh, the uh, American uh, doctor were to their family. And uh, I seen so many uh, incidents uh, that the American GI literally went out of their way, uh, went into danger just to save ordinary, strange-looking Vietnamese. Uh, Vietnamese man. Uh, so, uh, and later on, when I was uh, a little older, uh, learned a little more about the war, and saw that the American soldiers, the, Viet- the South Vietnamese soldiers, were actually winning the war. Uh, and uh, a few years after, uh, after the American withdrawal, uh, the whole thing, uh, the whole thing collapsed uh, because uh, my, I guess, uh, my size or my friends and relatives, they uh, didn't have uh, enough uh, supplies, basic supplies of support soldier from ammunition to food to fight uh, not just the North Vietnamese, but uh, the whole uh, Eastern Europe and the Russian and the Chinese who were 100% behind the North. Indeed. Now, Nams, your cousin was a Vietnamese airborne ranger 
who had to go through corpses of his friends killed in action to just get his hands on more ammo. Soldiers were given just 40 rounds, two magazines each. Talk about that, yes. if you could, your, your cousin. Yes, um, he was an airborne ranger, which uh, was the, the best uh, fighting unit in Vietnam. Uh, they would uh, have to go to the front line almost daily. Uh, and from 1973 to 75, whenever I talked to him, he became grimmer and grimmer uh, with the supplies. And not only that he had very limited uh, ammunition, and 40 bullets and two grenades, uh, it doesn't matter that if he's fighting 24 hours, if he uh, had to fight uh, uh, with, uh, uh, to repel a large invasion, that's all he had. He, uh, his unit, uh, we had to keep in mind, his unit was the number one fighting forces. Uh, so we beat, and they didn't have enough ammunition. Uh, so he felt very, very, uh, I guess, uh, very desperate. But uh, the thing I also remember, that his fighting uh, sp- spirit uh, was never, uh, never waver. He just felt that even with 40 uh, bullets, I just had to fire away uh, to reserve uh, my ammunition so I continue to fight to protect, uh, to protect the South. And but, you, you uh, had mentioned, Nam, that, that Vietnam was winning the war, and yet a lot of Americans just didn't know that. Because the body count kept going up and the media had continued to report that we were, in essence, losing the war. And ultimately, we did pull out. And what was the impact of that last chopper? And Americans have seen the picture of that last helicopter leaving the embassy, the U.S. embassy in Saigon and talk, I mean, in Hanoi. And talk about that, that experience and that picture and what that looked like and felt like. Uh. First, uh, we never expected uh, the, uh, the North uh, to win, uh, but uh, when uh, it's done it to, uh, to us that we actually had no choice but to leave uh, the country so we could, uh, we could survive, uh, it was very painful and uh, uh, very, very frustrating because we know that not only uh, we were winning, uh, but uh, we had... Uh, the right cause. The uh, I think the American government at that time did not expect that many South Vietnamese would uh, try to escape. Uh, I would say that the, uh, the media, every anybody who were involved with Vietnam, never thought that there were almost two hundred thousand Vietnamese would try to flee the so-called revolution or peace. And there were 200,000 Vietnamese trying to leave at the end of the war. Uh, and after the war, there were another uh, 4 million trying to escape uh, the so-called revolution. Uh, that uh, saying, that's telling us that uh, we had a very good cause to fight. And whatever uh, you, uh, we read about Vietnam War in the past, uh, most of those basically... I think now we can say the term fake news. Yeah, fake news indeed. I love that you kept saying the so-called revolution. 200,000 and then 4 million people don't flee their own country because something good just happened and some wonderful, peaceful, 
communist regime that was going to take care of everybody and treat them all equally. That communist, I almost called it delusion, because so many people at the time and in the 50s and straight through the 60s actually believed that communism was an actual competing philosophy, Nam, with capitalism. That freedom and, and the constriction of communism were, well, on the same moral plane. I am totally agree with you and having lived through some of that reality and uh, I mean communism is against human uh, so if there is a theory that is against human nature is against human it's not good for us it's not good for us and Nam when we come back we're going to drill down on the escape uh, you and your family leaving, your father a union organizer. And folks, when you're listening here, if you know the story of Lech Walesa in Poland, union organizers were the enemies of the communists. They were trying to bring the workers together and fight. And so his dad was a union organizer, but not how you think about it here in the United States. He was a union organizer challenging the communists, and there was a death warrant on Nam's father's head. And he had to leave or he was going to be a dead man. And so many other hundreds of thousands and millions escaped to this great country. And what a story it is, the story of Vietnamese Americans and what they've done in this country since. It's remarkable down in Biloxi, not far from where we broadcast in Oxford. My goodness, the Vietnamese found a home there, uh, found a fishing uh, habitat just perfect for them and we ultimately want to do more about this kind of storytelling here on our american stories when we continue nam story nam fam from refugee to government business and civic leader this is our american stories our american dreamer series continues after these few messages This is Our American Stories, and this is Our American Dreamer segment. And my goodness, we've done some great ones, and I think this one stands up there right with our Mario Andretti story. And by the way, you can hear the Mario Andretti story and all of our American Dreamer stories by going to ouramericannetwork.org. And this is brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network who fight every day for the kind of tax policies and the kind of freedom that people who escape places like Vietnam came here to enjoy. And Nam, when we left off with you, uh, your family had decided to leave Vietnam, and it's the day before, actually, that final helicopter landed in that iconic photograph, and your family headed to a barge. Talk about that trip, that decision. What was it like as a child, leaving everything and not knowing what was going to happen next? Uh, at that moment, uh, the only thought in our mind was we had to escape 
had we stayed back, uh, my father would be killed. Uh, none of us would get a chance uh, to have a decent life, uh, could go to school, or uh, or to have uh, basic uh, human dignity. We were desperate. Uh, my father was a union, union organizer, and uh, believe it or not, he ran into we ran to the river, and he met the company who owned the bar, which he had organized strike against the company. Uh, but uh, uh, that's one the, the first lesson we learned how professional and how kind again how kind the American uh, people can be. Uh, his uh, uh, his uh, counterpart uh, who owned the bar basically allowed us uh, to get on the bar. And uh, we'd, uh, we floated on the river for, uh, for a few days before we were rescued by a U.S. Navy freighter. Uh, we were on a barge with, uh, with the, little, the little river barge with uh, over 500 people. And uh, when we were rescued by the ship, we had to climb up on the ship using uh, the net, if you can imagine. Uh, I think the ship is about three or four story tall and the little bar on the river. So we had to climb up on the, uh, up to the ship using the net. When I was 19 years old, it was so difficult for me, but we had also kit and, uh, and, uh, an old ladies, old man. I still remember there was an old lady, uh, she fell off the net into the choppy sea. It was running, the way were high, the barge were, uh, were back and forth, hitting to uh, the body of the ship. But as soon as she fell into the ocean, two American soldiers jumped right into the ocean, tried to rescue her. Uh, at that time, even though I was so tired, so scared, so, disper- so desperate, I still thought, boy, this is unbelievable, so unbelievable. Uh, these two soldiers basically risked their life, jump into a choppy sea, try to rescue an old lady. The only thing that they could put back was her body. I mean, it's, it's so sad, but still it reinforced uh, into uh, my early belief that uh, the, the GI was so, so kind. And later on, I often say, and I'm saying, I'm sharing with you now, that American soldiers, American servicemen and women, they were more than a courageous soldier, but they also very wonderful humanitarians. They always go out of their way, try to save lives. And for me, seeing that uh, is it just uh, uh, let me feel that we made the right decision try to escape and we were so lucky to be rescued by uh, by the the American ship yeah you had to be thinking to yourself those communists were randomly shooting people for no good reason and didn't live far from home and looked a lot like you and these random strange looking guys were jumping out of ships and saving people they didn't know just because well just because Nam. And by the way, nine, your family, it was nine kids got onto that barge that floated down to, the, to that U.S. Navy ship. And you ended up going where from there, Nam? You, you get picked up by the Navy ship. And how do you end up yes. in the United States? Talk about that journey. Uh, 
Yes, uh, those uh, kind soldier rescued us uh, and took us to the uh, naval uh, base in in the Philippines, uh, Subic Bay, and we were fed. Uh, we were uh, given some clothes uh, in that uh, little base for a few days, and we were flown to uh, Guam, uh, so we could be vetted. Uh, like I said, no, there were not many people who expected that, that there would be hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese uh, trying to escape. Uh, so uh, we were kept in Guam for a week, and then we were uh, taken uh, to uh, an army base in Arkansas. Uh, uh, I, still I still remember the name of the base is uh, Fort Smith at Fort Jaffeet in Arkansas. And uh, we uh, stayed there for a few months uh, from uh, May uh, of 1975 to October, uh, so our paperwork could be processed. Uh, and uh, we could, uh, I guess, at that time, for any refugees uh, that uh, wanted to resettle in the U.S., uh, they, the family would need to have a sponsor. And we were fortunate enough to have a Catholic church in Minnesota uh, to sponsor our family of nine kids, uh, two parents, a grandmother, uh, and a young uncle. So the, all 13 of us ended up in a very nice, warm place in Minnesota. <laughs> Again, that had to be a shock for you, Nam. But I'll tell you this, your family was Buddhist, and yet a Catholic family had absolutely no problem with that. And they just offered you a safe place. And again, you have to be thinking, what is it about these American people? Did it puzzle you that there was this kind of kindness and love afforded an absolute stranger who didn't even share a culture, share a language, or share a religion? Uh, yes, yes. It always puzzled me. And uh, having been living here for over 40 years, uh, every day I'd, uh, I still... Uh, wake up with uh, the sense of this is a wonderful country with wonderful people. And I, and I say that with uh, all the sincerity from the bottom of my heart. We were really, really stranger in Minnesota. We were the first few Vietnamese family ever set foot uh, into the state. And like you said, Liz, we, we were Buddhist. They were Catholic. Uh, we could not speak English. They speak English. Uh, we... I don't think we could be any stranger to them or, or them to us. We didn't have any winter clothes. We didn't have uh, some of us who were still wearing sandals. Uh, but they opened their home, they opened their house uh, to, to keep us in, to feed us, to find a place for us to, uh, to live, uh, help us to find a job. Uh, help my younger brother and sister to go to school. Uh, I jokingly said that Minnesota was a warm place. Uh, it's cold, but it become warm because they have so many wonderful and kind people in Minnesota. Well, when we come back, Nam, we're going to dig into what happens next. You're in America. My goodness, you also happen to arrive in Minnesota as winter is beginning. My goodness, that's enough of a shock for anybody I don't know if I can handle Minnesota winter right now. I'm living in Oxford, Mississippi. When we come back, more with Nam Pham. And this is a remarkable story. One of our best American Dreamers stories. Always brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. More after these messages. 
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we continue our conversation with Nam Pham, whose American Dreamer story is about as impressive a journey as you can imagine. And Nam has been talking about, when we left off, having experienced this warm welcome from the folks and a Catholic family of all religions in Minnesota, of all places. And Nam, you, you go on then to, well, try and just fit in. The first thing you do is you grab a job. And what's your first job? And what do you do about language and faith and all of these differences? Talk about both of those things. Sure. Uh, my first job, uh, basically a week after I got to Minnesota, I was uh, working in a car wash. Uh, and uh, I still remember uh, that uh, thanks to that job, uh, I could learn a little English, uh, good morning, goodbye, and uh, and thank you. Uh, and uh, That's a pretty good start, Nam. That's a pretty good start. Good morning, thank you, very, and goodbye. Very, very good start, very good start. Uh, and uh, But in Minnesota, you know, it's cold, it's raining, it's uh, snowing. Uh, and I learned during the first couple of weeks uh, that when it's snowing, I wouldn't have a job. So I thought, oh, this is not good. I need to find an, uh, another job. So then uh, I'd uh, become a janitor uh, and uh, I swear uh, what they call it, a sticker boy, basically putting the price tag into different uh, stuff in the uh, grocery store. So uh, I uh, work this job, that job. And I continue to to learn English because I know that I, without English, I would be uh, a mute and a deaf person. Couldn't do much uh, to help myself or help my family. Uh, I learned uh, my sponsor help us to uh, learn English to the basin of the church, and I also later on find my way or found my way to the uh, local school. Uh, the local university, so I could uh, take uh, more English classes and uh, could uh, go back to uh, school to learn more, to make uh, something better for myself. And so you go to college and then end up in, in, of all places, Massachusetts, and more specifically, Cambridge, Massachusetts, Harvard University. And this had to be quite an experience as well, Nam. Talk about that. Uh, and I think if anything can happen, uh, if uh, you are optimistic, if you're hopeful, I always feel that uh, tomorrow is a better day. And uh, I, when I first come to the U.S. and when I got a chance to go to the university, I had a mission that I needed to learn about the American system uh, so I could help not only the small countries like Vietnam, wouldn't have to go through what we went through, but also how America, my adopted homeland, not to have to go through what America has gone through during the Vietnam War. Uh, so by I worked full-time. I went to school full-time, and I got uh, a fellowship to study at uh, the Kennedy School uh, of Government at, uh, at Harvard. And I still remember at that time, uh, a couple of things uh, that just stay with me. Uh, number one, people at Harvard in Cambridge did not really understand what happened, what was going on in Vietnam. Uh, their perception about American GI uh, was totally, totally different from what I actually experienced. Uh, and, uh, and also, 
when I was one of the first refugees staying there, uh, I had to work again. I really tried to find a job, but many of my uh, classmates uh, didn't have to didn't, didn't didn't have to worry about that. Uh, but uh, we all uh, we all try to do something good uh, for for America and for our people. And it's interesting, Nam. You you said that here are these supposedly best and brightest at Harvard, and yet they didn't know anything about the Vietnam War except probably some wrong things. And then their perception of the American GI, well, that probably came from movies. And even a a young soldier at the time who would become a senator, and that was John Kerry. He came back and depicted the American GI as a monster. And I remember it, and I'll never forget it because my dad had me watch it, and he was never so angry or sickened uh, at testimony. It didn't mean there weren't some bad soldiers. Um, because, of course, um, there are always bad cops, bad soldiers. But your experience with the American GI is much more the norm. And uh, you've had a lot of experience with them under the most difficult circumstances. Talk about that, if you can. Because that had to get you mad, Nam. That had to get you mad. <laughs> I try not to be angry uh, too much. Uh, but uh, I think Senator, uh, or, or the former Senator John Kerry and... Uh, the uh, former uh, Secretary of State, uh, John Kerry, uh, uh, he and I had a lot of different, uh, especially uh, looking at uh, at Vietnam War, uh, looking at the American GI, looking at what happened uh, to Vietnam and Cambodia and Laos after the war. And I think if uh, Senator Kerry or any other uh, people uh, who had uh, a view on Vietnam on Vietnam War, if they really look at what happened after the war, then they would change their view. Basically, more people were killed after the war, after so-called peace and revolution came, than during the war. People had to vote with their feet. They escaped uh, by boat, by uh, any means they can get to run away from revolution. So I think uh, the senator uh, and uh, any intellectual, any writers, any media uh, personality, uh, if they just look at the facts, and after the war, there have been a lot of facts coming up to tell the truth. Or just talk to us, talk to people who live through the war, who try to escape the war, and the perception about uh, how terrible America was would be dispelled. As a matter of fact, I get a chance to go back to Vietnam a number of times during the past many years. I travel from north to south, and everybody in Vietnam is very, very friendly to Americans. And there have been many American, uh, former American GI, a Vietnam vet, who had gone back to Vietnam, and they were so surprised that, oh, how come Vietnamese people love Americans? They love Americans because we recognize that, number one, America still has always been a beacon of hope for all of us. We wanted to have freedom. We want to have human dignity. And Americans during the war were trying to help us to achieve that. Yep, and that story is just not known, Nam. And since then, you've spent a lot of your time working in banking and civic organizations and government. 
But one consistent thing in your life is meeting and helping newcomers to America, including refugees like yourself, yourself, Nam. You've lived a fascinating life, and we're about to close this out, and you've touched so many people. What lessons have you learned over the decades, Nam? If you had a chance to talk to American folks about America, what have you learned that has most moved you over the many years of your life? America is a beacon of hope for everybody around the world. We, in Vietnamese, the name we call America is beautiful country. So uh, that's number one. Number two, America still provides uh, opportunities for people who look like me or who, or who don't look like me if that person is hopeful about the future, if that uh, person works work hard, and if that person receives a little help or he's helped other people, and all of those uh, hope, hard work, and help will provide a lot of opportunities for him or her to succeed in America. And tell us about your family really quickly, Nam. Uh, uh, just the composition of your family uh, so the folks can know a little bit more about you and where you're living right now. Uh, I live uh, in uh, Massachusetts, in Boston, Massachusetts. Yep. Uh, eight of my siblings uh, are living in different parts of the country, uh, but most of them are still in Minnesota, and uh, most of them uh, graduated from college, uh, working, uh, and uh, have become uh, American uh, citizens and voters. And what a wonderful story, Nam. And thank you so much for joining us for the hour and for sharing your story with us and particularly sharing the war story. I don't think it's told enough. We're going to do a better job of that here on Our American Stories. Nam, thank you so much, and we appreciate you taking the time. Thank you so much. It's been my pleasure, and it's been my fortunate to be in America. You bet. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, Our American Dreamer segment. Brought to us, as always, by the great folks at Job Creators Network. You can go to OurAmericanNetwork.org and check out all of our American Dreamers stories. This one, Nam's, sits right up there with Mario Andretti's as our favorites here on the show. Again, this is Our American Stories. <laughs> 